This is episode number 186, Using Your Mind to Go Faster with Matt Fitzgerald. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. The main thing that I found, it's true in my experience, and I have studied the subject a lot because it is of such deep personal interest to me. The number one factor is intentionality. If you dislike the discomfort that comes with racing and even hard training, you can't just sort of bumble along vaguely hoping that the next race isn't so painful or just hoping that you bring your mental A game. You have to make a conscious decision to improve your mental game. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that I love mental skills training, mental toughness, and anything in that category. So I was pretty excited about today's episode and getting to chat with Matt Fitzgerald. Matt Fitzgerald is a runner, coach, nutritionist, and an acclaimed author of well over 25 books. You may have heard of his book on mental toughness, How Bad Do You Want It? His online training plans at 8020endurance.com have helped thousands of athletes of all ability and experience levels achieve their goals. He's certified by the International Society of Sports Nutrition and has consulted for numerous sports nutrition companies. And he's also the creator of the Diet Quality Score smartphone app. A lifelong athlete, he speaks frequently at events throughout the United States and internationally. His newest book is called Life is a Marathon, but in this podcast, we definitely spent a lot of time talking about the mental side of sports. We talked about building his career and parental influence, how to overcome fear of suffering and suffering in a race, pain versus perception of effort and how to make it seem easier, aging as an endurance athlete, mental fatigue, pressure and personalization of failure and social comparison, growth mindset in sports. And at the end, we talked a little bit about race weight and what is 80-20 training. Thanks for sharing the show with your friends. Take a screenshot and post on social media. I think that a lot of people will really enjoy this episode. And if you have a few extra seconds, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so we can be super stoked seeing that you love the show and it'll also help other people find the show as well. Thank you. Thank you to those of you supporting my work financially on Patreon and on PayPal. I have invested a lot of my own personal money into this show to pay my team who helps make sure that it sounds great and that the show gets uploaded every week. And every dollar that you guys donate to the show goes towards helping them. So thank you so much for supporting me and for keeping this journey going. It's been almost three years of podcasting, which is really crazy. And it's been a huge investment of my time and money, but it is worth every single penny. So thank you to those of you who have helped along the way. Can't tell you enough how much I appreciate that. If you want to do that, you can go to patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show or just go to sonialooney.com slash podcasts. And there is a Patreon and a PayPal banner where you can donate. I have a free weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday. It's sonialooney.com slash newsletter if you want to get in with thousands of people. And I put out the new podcast, any type of articles that I've either written or come across and any giveaways that are coming up. So make sure you do that. It's sonialooney.com slash newsletter. 
if you like this type of topic, mental training, I've also linked in the show notes some other related episodes. Endure with Alice Hutchinson, Mental Fatigue with Dr. Walter Sciano, and Mental Fatigue with Dr. Stephen Chung. It's something that we've talked about a lot, but hearing it in lots of different ways and just being reminded, I think, is really important and really effective for mental training. So let's get into today's episode with Matt Fitzgerald. Welcome to the show, Matt. Great to be with you. Super fun to get to chat with you. I've read some of your books and it's always fun to put a face to a name and actually get to talk to brilliant people that you get to learn about through just media. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for reaching out. Yeah, so for people not familiar with you, I'd love to hear about how you built your career and also about your dreams of being a comedic poet at age nine. (laughs) Yes, you read up on me, huh? (laughs) Well, you know, my dad is a writer. And he also was running marathons back when I was a kid. So I'm a chip off the old block. Yeah, by the time I was nine years old, I was writing poetry. I think it was I was in third grade and uh, the whole class had to write a poem as an assignment. And I just really enjoyed it. I was a big fan of Dr. Seuss and Shel Silverstein. So everyone in the class had to write one poem, but I just kept on writing them. And I did it through the rest of my childhood. I, I knew you couldn't really make a living as... I wrote like, you know, satirical poetry. I I wrote for laughs. But yeah, so I knew I just wanted to be some kind of writer. And I got into the running thing when I was about 11. Um, That was the age at which my dad ran his first marathon and didn't really anticipate writing about running and other endurance sports. But I had a passion for both. So that's how it turned out. I, I grew up in the East Coast, but moved to California in 1995, a couple of years out of college and was just going to try to get the first decent writing job I could get. And the job I got was with uh, Startup Endurance Sports Magazine. And at that time, I had gotten away from running, but that got me back into it. That got me writing about running and other endurance sports, and the rest is history, as they say. It sounds like your dad's been a pretty influential person in your life. Yeah, very much so. Anyone who knows both of us would tell you that uh, we're a lot alike. You know, we're we're not exactly like, you know, he writes a lot of fiction and I couldn't write a novel to save my life. So, I mean, we're not carbon copies, but yeah, he definitely had a big influence on me. You know, when I was a kid and, you know, I looked up to him and when, you know, it was clear that I had similar interests, you know, I think every child likes to please their parents. And I, 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 you know, it was apparent to me that by, you know, winning writing awards and winning races, my dad was he loved me unconditionally, but it would make him proud when, when I accomplished things and, and passions that we both shared. And that was extremely motivating for me. And it's why I didn't really think about it at the time when I was a kid. But, you know, here I am still at it. And when you look back, you can see that you were sort of set on a course very early in life. And, you know, in my case, I never really deviated. Yeah. And I think it's also really powerful that, like, whenever you have a parent support you in, quote, an unconventional dream path. Like a lot of kids want to be a writer or like an athlete. And I'm speaking from personal experience and your parents just kind of laugh at you and they're like, well, go get a real job. Like it's not going to happen. It's it's really hard to make a career doing those things. And that must have been just really awesome to have that kind of like belief in you from a young age. Yeah. You know, my parents, you know, I guess they're, they're wise people and, you know, they're, I remember very clearly the advice they gave me was, 
you know, the old adage, follow your bliss, that, you know, they, they said the money will take care of itself. If you love something and you invest a lot of passion in it, you're probably going to be happy whether you have a lot of money or not. And, you know, and the money will probably take care of itself. And that, that's kind of how it worked out. I mean, honestly, I really, I really struggled for a while, you know, trying to, <laughs> trying to keep the bills paid. <laughs> it's not easy. No. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny, you know, I remember in college, you know, I was an English major and, and we all wanted to be writers. And then, you know, two years after college, I was still at it and the rest of them are in law school. <laughs> <laughs> they saw how hard it was. And, but I knew I really didn't know I would be not happy doing anything else. So I, I stuck it out. Yeah. And I mean, I lost count when I was trying to count the number of books that you've published on your website. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's a little embarrassing because it is quite a large number. And it kind of <laughs> makes me I mean, I, I do try to write for quality, not quantity. But I have so many ideas that, you know, and I've been at it for a while. So, yeah, they add up over time. <laughs> Well, I really admire the discipline because I've been trying for embarrassingly trying to write a book for like two or three years and I get started and then I stop and then I make excuses and just, just the commitment to be able to finish even one book. I, I just think that's awesome. <laughs> it's hard. It, it, you know, I think there's a lot in common between writing and being an endurance athlete. They're no matter how much you love them, it's kind of a love hate thing. You know, they're both a grind. But, you know, I remember back in high school when I was, you know, running on the cross country and track teams, you know, my friends who were on the teams with me, we used to joke, you know, why couldn't we have been good at something fun? <laughs> but, you know, I do love both, but they're both very challenging. I mean, write, writing a book is it's a hair pulling activity at times. So how come you ended up not running in college? Because you just said you were running in high school. And then you said you had a stint where you weren't running before you took your first job for an endurance magazine. Yeah, you know, I think a lot about that because I really it's one of my biggest regrets. You know, I quit running, you know, in the spring of my senior year of high school. And I truly thought I would never compete again. And given how deeply I got back into it, I really wish I hadn't quit. Uh, yeah, I went to Haverford College, which is a Division three school, but they had a really great program. They, their coach Tom Donnelly, who I think is still there, he just had this tremendous track record for turning like B level high school talents like me and into uh, you know all Americans at, at the Division three level. And you know, actually, you know, Haverford had the first sub four minute Division three miler ever. So that, I mean, you know, it was a great program, but I didn't take advantage of it. I chose the school intending to run there and then burn out as to why I quit. I think, you know, part of it was I was I was a bit of a head case and I love the sport. I love competing, but I had a hard time with the, the pain and suffering involved and I just didn't deal with it well. I think that was the biggest factor. Honestly, I write about it in my most recent book, Life is a Marathon, which is actually a memoir. Uh, you know, a lot of people struggle with the pressure. I was one of the better runners in my state, New Hampshire, but it wasn't really the pressure to win that got to me. It was really the the fear of suffering. I think that there were other factors at play. We had like a revolving door of mediocre coaches. I think a good mentor would have helped me, but I put most of it on me. I just, uh, I wasn't uh, quite grown up enough to see that I really needed to to stay with it. 
Yeah. And then lo and behold, you have all of these really interesting and really useful books about performance and mindset and, and all those things. So I want to get kind of into those. You mentioned fear of suffering, and I want to talk about suffering as our first kind of topic because endurance sports are truly about like, well, one of the things they're truly about is suffering and being comfortable with being in pain and everyone has a different spectrum for suffering. So like what has been your research with some of the top athletes with in regards to suffering and for people who are afraid of suffering, how can they get over that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I myself am living proof that, you know, you don't have to be born quote unquote mentally tough to become mentally tough because, you know, I, I truly, I feel like I can suffer with the best of them. Now I really have no fear of it whatsoever. <laughs> And so I've come a long way from, from where I was, where, you know, in high school, I faked an injury in the middle of a race to get out of finishing it. I hid in the woods once to, to get out of starting a race. So I did some really <laughs> shameful stuff, uh, you know, due to that fear. And, and I really have gotten past it. So I think, you know, the main thing that I found, it's true in my experience, and I have studied the subject a lot because it is of such deep personal interest to me. The number one factor is intentionality. If you dislike the discomfort that comes with racing and even hard training, you can't just sort of bumble along vaguely hoping that the next race isn't so painful or just hoping that you bring your mental A game. You have to make a conscious decision to improve your mental game. That, you know, that's what I did. So it doesn't, it's not that it happens overnight, but it's not going to happen at all, or it's very unlikely to unless it's a, a project, you know, everyone has explicit goals for, you know, qualifying for this or that, or achieving a personal best for a standard distance or whatever. We all have those types of goals, but I made it my goal. I kind of put those types of goals, the, the number-based ones on the back burner. And my goal was to just leave it all out there in each race. And again, it didn't happen overnight, but if you are that intentional and conscious about it, it's going to happen eventually through persistence. There's a lot more to it in terms of you know the mechanics of, of how, and we can talk more about that. But the intentionality is, is definitely, it's, it's, it's truly half the battle. Yeah. I know that like at the beginning of each season, when I haven't raced for a while, I always have a little bit of anxiety about the pain of the first race. And I do a lot of indoor training in the winter on my bike because of where I live. And the indoor training has actually been a really great opportunity to get really up close and personal with pain and suffering because there is no distraction from that type of pain. And yeah. you, you learn to sort of brace yourself for what's going to happen and getting comfortable with having those experiences repeatedly. So like indoor training has been a huge game changer for me in terms of being able to embrace suffering, especially with those first few races. Right. Yeah, sort of, you know, related to that, you know, one thing that anyone can do, you know, starting today to begin to, you know, bootstrap their way toward being more comfortable with suffering is choose to do something routinely in your training that you hate precisely because you hate it. You know, to be clear, like, you know, smart endurance training is not about going out and slaughtering yourself in every single workout. You know, if you want to do that, there's CrossFit. <laughs> um, <laughs> So you have to be smart, but I do things like in my own training, for example, in my strength workouts, I wrote a blog post about this a few months ago. 
like I hate side planks. I think everyone has like some, you know, one or one or more gym exercises that they, they just kind of suck at and uh, that are very painful for them. And for me, it's side planks. So that's actually, I try to rotate, you know, my exercises, you know, for, you know, the benefits of variation, but I do side planks every single time I go to the gym and it's because I hate them. And it's sort of like the cold shower thing. You know, you just, you do it. There's no reason to, to take a cold shower other than that it puts hair on your chest, so to speak. So yeah, even like in terms of, you know, with the indoor training, you know, I think there are some workouts that people tend, you know, th there should be a variety of tools in your toolbox, a variety of workouts that you, you know, that are in your regular rotation. And there might be some that you kind of tend to avoid because they're not really in your wheelhouse. And, you know, just to sort of identify your least favorite workout that you should do just for practical reasons and do it actually more often. Uh, because you, if you do that, it, it's like you said, sort of bracing yourself or girding yourself. You can, you can embrace the suck and you can trans your whole attitude toward it can change. It's like, yeah, I don't like it, but I sort of like not liking it. And it leads somewhere. It's not about proving your toughness to yourself or anyone. It's really practically beneficial. Yeah, like being able to normalize discomfort and then just being like, yeah, I don't enjoy this pain, but I accept this pain and, right. I, and I know how to do this. Like there's a lot of power into thinking that way about pain and suffering instead of saying, I don't like this or this hurts or I'm not gonna be able to make it. Like the self-talk around pain and around suffering, I think is super powerful. Totally, yeah. In uh, my book, How Bad You Want It, I talk about, and this is uh, you know, to get into the, the science of it, because there's such cool science, and I, I am not a scientist. Uh, I think I've made that clear. <laughs> but uh, you know, the science in this area is really fascinating. It, it, there's a lot of really brilliant people uh, doing research in what well, it's really like exercise physiology and psychology and even neuroscience have all come together. And you know, there's a lot being discovered. But one of the things that is now understood about pain, which is actually distinct from perception of effort, perception of effort is it feels a lot like pain. And you do experience, obviously, some pain during endurance exercise, but perception of effort is really what we're talking about. And it can be as excruciating as, you know, stepping on a tack or whatever. But it, it is that that is our discomfort, perception of effort. And there are kind of two layers to it. One is the, the layer that it really is uh, neuropsychological. When your brain is working very hard to drive your muscles, you're going to feel a high level of perception of effort. There's nothing you can do about that. You know, if you get, you know, 35K into a 40K time trial, you're, you're going to be hurting. But there's actually perception of effort has two layers to it. That, the one layer that you can't, that's sort of rooted in brain activity, you can't do anything about it. But there's also an emotional valence to it, a second layer. It's like the way I put it in the book is there's how you feel and how you feel about how you feel. And, the, and how you feel about how you feel is the part you can control. That's where the self-talk comes, comes in. And when you start to play around with that, you realize that you have all kinds of freedom. And if you, if you just sort of let, let it happen, you don't even realize that that second layer exists. You're, you're just kind of a slave to how you feel. But you don't have to be if you recognize that freedom you have to sort of step back from your discomfort and take a different angle on it. A psychologist referred to it as reframing. You can't change the picture, but you can change the frame you put around it. 
Exactly. And the way that you explain what's happening to yourself about the thing that's happening. <laughs> yeah. It's really cool because I think, you know, I'm 48 years old now and I've, I've been doing this for many years and the, you know, I'm not getting any younger. Well, I'm not, you know, my body's going in one direction, but my mind is still going in the other. So, you know, it's, it's a never ending journey. You can keep, that's what keeps it so fascinating to me is that you can keep getting better and better and better at the mental game. Well, didn't you just run like a 239 marathon, like in the last couple of years? Yeah, yeah, two two years. Yeah, I was forty six in Chicago. That was a personal best. Eight years after my what I thought was going to stand as my my tombstone <laughs> marathon time. So yeah, that shows you right there because it's not like I was aging in reverse, right? You know, it was really I was able to improve years after I thought I was done improving just by using, you know accumulated wisdom and experience and, and, you know, some more of the, the mental aspects. Yeah. I mean, as, as I get old, like I'm 36, but as I get older as an endurance athlete and I've been around for quite some time, you know, doing endurance mountain biking, but I think that what happens is people age is yeah. Like our, maybe we don't recover as fast or, or things like that happen, but our, I think people's mind is what gives out first. And it's, yeah. It seems like the people who are thriving in their 40s and as they age are the people who have really spent time working on resilience and mental toughness and these these mental skills to be able to endure the types of things you have to endure in an endurance sports. And they're able to thrive because of those skills. Yes. Yeah, I remember uh, talking I, a number of years ago, I wrote an article about sort of aging well as an endurance athlete. And you know, one of the people I, I had to interview for it was Dave Scott, the, the legendary triathlete who, you know, he won the Ironman World Championship six times, but he also finished second in, in kind of a comeback at age 40 and then fifth at 42. And so, you know, he aged really well. And he, he actually was going to make another comeback when he was 55 and was just performing incredibly in his training but he got uh, he got hit by a car on his bike and wasn't able to to consummate that late age comeback but anyway when when I asked him you know what's the secret he said you know so many people expect so many athletes expect to slow down when they, when they get older i didn't <laughs> <laughs> you know i'm just like you know it's kind of the kicking and screaming thing um and i think also passion is a huge part of it as well. That like, if you just remain hungry, not like desperate and holding on, but just hungry, just loving it. I think that's the case for me. Like, you know, I, I always let goals come to me. I, I never try to force, you know, what's next. You know, like when I ran that, that personal best marathon two years ago at 46, you know, I knew I probably wasn't going to, you know, top that. So I didn't even try you know, I just said, okay, I'm just going to chill for a bit and wait for the next thing to come to me. And the next thing that came to me was an Ironman comeback. I hadn't done an Ironman in like 17 years. So this spring I did my first Ironman in 17 years and I beat my time at 48 from when I was 31. <laughs> so yeah, if you just stay hungry and, you know, just let your goals come to you and do the things that feel right, you know, that just kind of get you out of bed in the morning on fire for the next workout. That's that's a big part of the secret to aging well as an endurance athlete. Yeah. And I want to ask about some physical training advice because I put out a tweet and, and also um, a Facebook post about people 
people can ask questions for this podcast. And I don't, I don't yeah. want to do like those specific questions because I don't think that they'll be really valuable to this audience because most people aren't runners. But it seemed like a similar theme was people wanted advice as you age, like how to train better, how to recover better and things that need yeah. to be considered as the aging athlete. Yeah. I think, you know, uh, in, in terms of like the nuts and bolts of training, on one level, you sort of have to, you have to do two contradictory things. One is like fight back against what aging does to your body, but you also have to accommodate what aging does to your body and you have to know when to do which. Um, so, you know, you know, the first things to go are things like, you know, maximum power, maximum speed, maximum strength, and also, you know, mobility, you know, your, your joints start to stiffen up, you know, literally, uh, they start to stiffen up. And so if you have been a little bit slack in some of those, like ancillary training modalities, like mobility work, strength work, if you invest more, in those areas, you can, you know, if not turn back the clock, slow it down a little bit. But at the same time, like just because you're, you know, say, you know, maximum power output is going down because you're getting older, doesn't mean like you want to completely throw your training out of balance, you know, fighting to increase that or to slow that down. You want, you know, because, it, <laughs> you know, you're still human and, you know, you can't just train like a power athlete, even though you're training for endurance athletes, simply because you're, you're getting older. I, I remember interviewing the uh, legendary Ethiopian marathon, well, uh, long distance runner, uh, Haile Geber Selassie. He broke 27 world records in his career. And he had just broke, set his second marathon world record when I interviewed him. And he was officially 36, but I think he was more like actually close to 40. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's a thing. <laughs> in uh, East Africa, a lot of, well, I mean, in his generation, a lot of kids weren't born in hospitals, so they didn't have birth certificates, uh, so they just kind of made stuff up. Anyway, so you know, I told, I asked him about like getting older and how he changes training, and he said, you know, if my coach tells me to go out and hammer a bunch of 200 meter sprints, I'll tell him to go, you know, fly a kite because I know my Achilles, you know, he had had Achilles surgery. He's like, I know my Achilles will pop if I do that. So he tried to like find other ways you know, to still set world records at, you know, despite being long in the tooth, but it wasn't about just, you know, forcing it. Yeah. And I want to go back and talk about perception of effort again, really quickly, because I wanted to ask you about other things people can do to reduce their perception of effort. Because like you said, there's the thoughts about that. And there are specific things in the research that you can do. So I'd love to hear what your experience has been. Yeah, the, the really a number of things. So, I mean, basically, you know, there are two things you can do in relation to perception of effort to perform better. One is to increase your maximum tolerance for perception of effort, you know, simply to be able to suffer more. But that's not the entire story. And what you're getting at is the other way, which is actually to experience a lower level of perceived effort at a given level of output. And I mean, you can do that you know, pharmaceutically, like that's how caffeine works. You know, caffeine is a, is a well-proven endurance performance enhancer. And, the, you know, originally, back before exercise physiologists took the brain seriously, they thought, okay, it must increase like fat burning or whatever. But <laughs> no, it, it just it makes exercise feel easier. 
that's how music works also. If, if you listen to the right music, it is measurably performance enhancing for endurance athletes. And that's how it works. It makes the same level of effort feel easier. But even, you know, you don't need those sort of out. I mean, you can take advantage of those outside inter interventions, but there's also stuff you can do in the privacy of your own mind. Another thing that's proven to reduce perception of effort is training in groups. You know, that's part of, I, there's a whole chapter about that and how bad you want it, the group effect. There's a phenomenon known as behavioral syncrasy, which is whenever you're doing the same thing other people are doing at the same time, you know, it releases endorphins in your brain. So that causes, like, you'll be able, um, that's part of the reason, you know, we think of competition as, you know, being a performance enhancer, but part of it is just like being around other people, all, you know, trying to do your best. Another one is an external focus of attention. So, I mean, you know, when you're out there pedaling hard, you can either be focused internally in terms of like your perceptions and thoughts, or you can be focused externally on your environment, on what you're doing, on the things around you. And it is well proven that, you know, not a random external focus like bird watching, but a sort of performance relevant external focus, like trying to catch the athlete ahead of you or trying to stay ahead of the athlete behind you, those types of things. Uh, externalizing your attentional focus reduces perception of effort and increases performance. And th there's a pretty long list. Yeah. And I, I think that that last one you mentioned is really interesting because I also think that that can decrease performance in some ways, because if someone sees someone in front of them and it's a long race and they're trying to pace themselves appropriately, like they might quote, <laughs> this is a funny word, but they might overpace, like trying to catch that person and then blow themselves yeah. up too. Cause I think you need to have a little bit of both, like the internal self-restraint to stay your pace, but also the motivation of that catching that person ahead. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of nuance to it. You know, there, there have been studies done in running. Cycling is a little bit different because you're, you, there's a machine involved. But in running, there have been studies done showing that, like, if you focus on your form or if you focus on your breathing, you're actually, you actually run less economically than if you focus externally. So initially, like, that was the full story. Like, the scientists, German scientists who did this research, that they were saying, like, well, you shouldn't think about inside your body. You should think about things outside your body when you're running because you'll run more efficiently. But then they did follow-up research and they found that there was more nuance to it, that actually some ways of focusing internally are beneficial, like, like reading your effort level. That's okay. So like you shouldn't tie yourself up like thinking about like, how are my arms moving? How are my legs moving? Like that's not good for you. But reading your effort and thinking, okay, am I actually working at a level I can sustain through the rest of the race? That is beneficial. So yeah, your, your point is well taken. There's, I mean, I actually like that, that, you know, there's not like one single secret to mental performance. And actually some of the things that you have to do are like borderline contradictory, like the balance between like being tough and being smart. Off, it's like a, those things could be sort of like a tug of war. You know, being smart works against being tough. And you have to find, you know, in this moment, you know, in this race, do I need to like go with being tough or being smart? You know, there's a lot to it. And I like that because it, it makes it hard to be the best mentally. So it gives you, if you commit yourself to getting better, 
it gives you actually a lot of opportunities to gain competitive advantages mentally over other athletes. Yeah. And I also want to bring up inhibitory control because I, I think that that's kind of adjacent, but related to this about focus. Yep. For people who aren't familiar with inhibitory control, can you define what that is and then how people can have better focus? Yeah. So inhibitory control is an, a mouthful that refers to the capacity of your mind to override impulses. So the example I, I usually give is if, let's say you're on a weight loss diet, you're trying to lose five pounds, and you just happen to have a weakness for German chocolate cake, and you know, you're know you one week into your diet, and your neighbor comes over with a freshly baked German chocolate cake, and it just so happens that you're hungry at the time the neighbor brings the cake over, you'll experience an impulsive desire to have a slice you know, right then and there. But you have the capacity to override that impulse. And that's what inhibitory control is. It's, it's when you have that sort of battle between two voices in your head, one saying, keep going, another one saying, stop, one saying, eat the cake, another saying, but you're trying to lose five pounds. This is not to say that, you know, that impulses are always bad and that you should you know, always override them. But if you do have a goal like more of a long-term goal that's really important to you, you need to be good at inhibitory control. And endurance athletes really need to be good at it, you know, because you, you know, we all go into races with, with goals, but then, you know, when it gets down to it and, you know, we all have that moment, like, why am I here? <laughs> How bad do I really want this? And, you know, if, if you have a, a well-developed capacity for inhibitory control, you'll be able to override you know, the perfectly natural desire to avoid suffering. And if you do that after the race, you'll feel a lot better about yourself that you didn't, you know, you didn't give in to that, that voice. Yeah. And I think the topic of mental fatigue is really interesting. That was probably the biggest thing that I learned. It was a big lesson back in 2018. I had some serious burnout because I was trying to do everything like working like tons and tons of hours and like training like an animal and still racing a ton and I didn't realize how much mental fatigue contributes to physical fatigue and higher perception of effort and also lack of focus. Yeah. It, you know, it's funny, you know, when I learned about that research and there's been uh, some really fascinating studies, you know, like, you know, the basic design that, that proves the point you just mentioned is where subjects in an experiment are given some cognitively demanding task to perform. And then they're, they have to do, you know, some type of endurance challenge, like, you know, a ride to exhaustion at a fixed high intensity or, or whatever. And they'll actually perform, the subjects will perform worse in the endurance task if they've done a prior cognitively demanding mental task. So that's how mental fatigue negatively affects endurance performance. And, you know, when I read about that research for the first time, I, I remember, I recalled that. I think it was before the state championship cross country race in maybe my must have been my I guess senior year of high school. I took the SAT that same morning. <laughs> I actually had a good race, but I couldn't help thinking I might have had a better race if I hadn't spent three hours, you know, racking my brain to come up with all the 
vocabulary words I know. <laughs> I know that totally rung a bell with me as well, because I was at, a, it was like a seven day mountain bike race in Spain and there the races start quite a bit later. So before the race, I would be like working or writing an article and doing all these things. And then I'd race. And I thought to myself like, ah, oh, if I had only known that if that mental stimulus actually was causing a negative impact on my racing, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. And it's also, it's not just the cognitive energy depletion, but also emotional energy depletion can negatively affect endurance performance. I remember one study on that topic, they had people watch some kind of disturbing video. I don't, I don't remember exactly what the content of it was, but the subjects were asked to repress their emotional response to it. So basically to keep a poker face, despite watching a video that was emotionally disturbing and that negatively affected subsequent endurance performance. So, you know, because, you know, your brain, all this might, uh, I guess, you know, some people listening might think like, well, how's that? But you have to remember your brain is in control of everything. Like you can't move a muscle without your brain commanding the muscle to move. But it's not just endurance exercise that your brain is in control of. It's everything. You know, it's, it's, the mental energy you put into your job. It's the mental mental energy you put into or emotional energy you put into your relationships. And so when your brain gets sapped from a lot of that stuff, not, you know, not to say that they also can't, you know, like work can also give you energy and relationships can also give you energy, but like certain types of mental activity will deplete the same reserves that you need to put into endurance performance. And that's how it's, uh, you know, you've only got one brain and it's in control of everything. Yeah. And I think a good takeaway for people listening is that no one lives in a vacuum. So if you want to make the most of your training, this is why training in the morning is good because you're not going to have all of that stimulus or emotional repression built up before you even start your training and why training can feel a lot harder in the evening. And also why on like quote rest days, like most of us are going to work on the rest day that we're taking, but to try and like reduce what we're doing instead of adding in. Cause I know like for me on rest days, it's, it's a constant battle. I say, well, I don't have to spend all this time, you know, riding my bike. So I'm going to spend all this time trying to get ahead in all these other things, but then really your rest day is not restful at all. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, and you know, even professional athletes deal with this stuff, you know, they, they have lives too. And you know, what they have to do is, you know, because their livelihood depends on their performance is, you know, just balance stuff and try to do things in a way where the different components of your life complement each other. You know, they're never going to be, you know, completely synergistic. That's impossible for any of us. But if you can think in those holistic terms that, you know, your work does impact your athletics and your relationships do and every other part, like they're all interconnected, then you can start to just like, you know, not compartmental, not over compartmentalize and treat the athletic piece of your life as completely distinct from everything else. So yeah, sleep, diet, stress management, work relationships, everything. Yeah. And another thing that I learned was probably like four years ago, but I used to treat travel days as a rest day and travel days are exhausting. And they actually, like, if you go into a travel day and you did a really hard workout the day before, chances are you're not going to recover very well. So like if you're traveling to a race, like making sure that you're almost rested before you even travel is, is another great way to be more, I guess, rested. 
yeah, I mean, that, that's a great example of, it, of the point I was trying to make earlier. Like, yeah, if you're not thinking in those holistic terms, that might never cross your mind to approach travel in that way. But yeah, if you start to, you know, start to pay attention to how one thing affects another, um, yeah, because travel is, is exhausting. And just because you're not, you know, turning cranks doesn't mean it's not exhausting in, in ways that overlap with training. So yeah, it's just a, a shift in mindset. But um, and again, there's only so much you can do. Yeah, it's, it's it's a productive way to look at things. I want to change gears and talk about pressure. And there's pressure that we place on ourselves. And it might be for different reasons. We might be worried about what other people think or worried about the pressure of suffering, like you mentioned, hiding in the woods. <laughs> yeah, I was worried about the pressure of what other people would think when I was a new pro, I wasn't very fast and I wasn't doing well. And I would dream of stabbing holes in my tire. That way I'd have an excuse as to why I wasn't doing well. Why do you think people personalize failure so much? And what are some ways to stop doing that? I mean, th- there are a couple different aspects to it. One is social. So by nature, we're wired to compare ourselves to other people. And, you know, I could, I could tell you stop doing that and you won't <laughs> because <laughs> it's, just, it's just human. We all do. But, you know, you can sort of just accept that and then find ways to make the best of it, you know, just ranking ourselves against other people. You know, the, the best way to manage that is really just to stay r- as rational as you can be and kind of keep your eyes on the prize. I'm thinking of one athlete I, I coach who who would botch workouts I gave him whenever there was a Strava segment involved. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he would he would find out, oh, like, you know, this tempo you gave me overlaps with a Strava segment and, you know, the, the best time is within reach. So I'm just going to like blow the workout you know, to, to claim this, you know, this essentially meaningless bobble. <laughs> and like, that's an example of like not managing that social aspect, but that could turn into pressure very easily. You know, I mean, what if, what if the athlete, you know, blew the workout and then fell short of claiming the prize, then it's like done double damage. Not only was, you know, the purpose of the workout not achieved, but there's a, a negative effect to the athlete's confidence. So uh, that pressure, definitely one source of it is that social pecking order type of thing. But another aspect of it comes from what's known in, in psychology as like kind of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And, th- and those different mindsets are based on, on fundamental beliefs that you have about whether you can improve your native abilities or whether they're sort of just kind of locked in and you know baked in at, at birth. And so people with a fixed mindset who tend to think that, you know, I'm as good as I'll ever be, they tend to look at uh, challenging workouts and races as tests. I mean, I guess races sort of are, but they're all actually growth opportunities. So people with a growth mindset think of everything, they, every challenging thing, thing they do as Yes, they're a measuring stick of where you are now, but they're also stepping stones to getting better. The fixed mindset, you're sort of like, it can put you under a lot of pressure. And I see this with athletes I coach. They'll get really nervous for you know a particular workout. It's like, well, if I don't hit my numbers, uh, it means I'm not really good at running. Like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> like, if you just if you just do the workout it's benefiting you and then you'll be better for the next hard, hard workout. So that's another source of pressure is that 
those two different mindsets. And, you know, there's, you can like all these things are changeable. So you can, if, if you're sort of a fixed mindset type where you tend to look at challenges as tests versus growth opportunities, you know, if you're, if you're aware of that, you can work on it and improve. Yeah. For those listening who want to learn more about growth and fixed mindset, Carol Dweck's book mindset is awesome. And she's kind of the psychologist that kind of coined these terms and yeah, like you can have a fixed mindset in one place in your life and a growth mindset in others. And people with fixed mindsets are looking at like their results as validation that they are good enough or they're not good enough. And that's just such so much pressure there with that because like you're not going to win every single race and you're not going to perform well every single race. So if you put that kind of pressure on yourself, you're probably not going to have very much fun. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting to see people who, you know, we, we, you mentioned earlier the PR marathon I ran at, uh, at 46. Well, that came at the very end of uh, an entire summer I spent training with a team of professional runners in Flagstaff. I actually have a, a book about this experience coming out in May called Running the Dream. So it was me, 46-year-old, awesome. never elite runner, training with a bunch of men and women half my age with twice my talent. And it was really eye-opening to see how they managed, you know, because you know, I coach recreational athletes, but, you know, I was hobnobbing with professional athletes. And they do such a good job of, of staying realistic about what the purpose of everything they do is. So, you know, I saw athletes in, in that context bailing out of workouts left and right whenever it was, it wasn't because they weren't tough or they weren't committed. It was because they were making the smart decision. I remember doing a, like a, there was one athlete who was also on the team, Aaron Braun, who was training for the Chicago marathon. Like he was training to run 211. I was training to run under 240, but he was supposed to do a 26 mile depletion run. That's a run that you do with no calories. And he, he quit after 24 miles of the 26. And he just told me, well, my hip was bugging me a little bit. So I f figured, who needs those two miles? Like that, that sounds, I don't know if it sounds like a big deal or not, but like most recreational athletes couldn't have had that discipline to just, you know, you know most, the fixed mindset would be, oh, I'm so close to finishing, you know, what I was assigned to do. And if I can't do it, you know, it means I'm not ready for the Chicago marathon. That wasn't his attitude at all. It's like, hey, I've done 24 miles. The training process has gone pretty well up to this point. My hip's starting to bother me a little bit. What's the point of finishing out the last two miles? I've had a good day. I'm going to pull the ripcord. And I just saw that over and over again with these, you know, the, these high-level athletes. The, they're plenty tough, but they're as smart and disciplined as they are tough. And, they, and what that allows them to do, among other things, is, is manage pressure well and not let pressure get the best of them. Yeah. And it sounds like it's also trust and confidence that you can actually do that because if you feel like you need to complete every single workout regardless, or say your coach assigns you, you know, a certain number of intervals, but now you're not hitting the number that you're supposed to hit. Like it, it does take confidence to pull the ripcord and say, I'm done. But also it takes trust to say that, yeah, like if I'm not able to hit these numbers anymore, and I'm so far off the target, that means that my body is done and I, I can't do anymore. And it, it, yeah, it's the whole training thing does take confidence to know like what's enough and what's going to be in your best interest for long term. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, I tell athletes this all the time, like make the decision you would make if it weren't you, but another <laughs> athlete. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? Because like, I think we all have judgment. You know, we're all we all have the capacity to make rational decisions, but it's easier for us to do it for other people. You know, like when there's not an emotional attachment. You know, I mean, I don't know if this is a dangerous analogy or not, but we've probably all had friends who are dating someone who's not good for them, and we're like, you need to dump that person. It's yeah. <laughs> that, that that guy or that gal's bad news. But then we turn around and do the same thing ourselves. We date someone who's not good for us and like we just are blind to it. So we do the same thing as athletes. And, you know, it's just it's easier said than done. But if if you make it kind of a conscious exercise, well, you know, what would I do in this situation if I were advising? Like, you know, you can step back from your emotions and understand what the rational decision is you know, live, live to fight another day. I did it just today. I, I just, before I got on the line with you, I did a progression run that was supposed to be a four mile progression, you know, each mile faster than the one before. But I knew from the first stride of, of the run that it was not my day. So I just, I shortened it to three miles and, you know, it was uncomfortable and I, I didn't like it. And, you know, I wish it weren't happening, but I didn't, I didn't overinterpret what was going on. You know, I'm I'm running a half marathon this weekend. I didn't come out of this run, even though it didn't go well, thinking, oh, well, you know, my goal is, you know, it's beyond my reach. I'm not going to be able to do on Saturday what I thought I was going to do. No, I preserved the hope of being able to do what I want to do by making a smart decision, you know, by not trying to tough it out. But yeah, if if your confidence is shaky, you'll tend to force it. Well, I need proof. I need proof that I can do what I want to do. And and that could actually be self-sabotaging. Yeah. If you're looking for proof every workout that you're fast, that's, that's a tough place to be. Yeah. (laughs) For the last little part of this podcast, I want to just change gears a little bit because you've written some books about race weight and cyclists. I mean, I'm sure it's the same in, in running and triathlon, but cyclists, especially some cyclists can be incredibly neurotic to the point of being really unhealthy about weight and relationship with food and those types of things. And people tend to think that, just being as skinny as possible is the best way to go. And I don't agree with that. And I'd I'd love to hear what you think about race weight and how people can have a better relationship with their weight and what their, and and knowing what their ideal weight should even be. Yeah. That's a pretty good segue, actually. I mean, it's not that much of a change of gear because it's kind of the same mentality that you need to apply to performance weight management of just staying rational, staying reasonable and keeping your eyes on the prize. And you know, not mistaking the means for the end. You know, I'm not, lately there's this kind of racing weight backlash that's going on where some people are saying, well, we really shouldn't even talk about it. It's just, it's a third rail. We shouldn't go there. We should pretend that you're, it doesn't matter how much you weigh if you're an endurance athlete. Well, that's not true. It does matter. (laughs) So you just need to go about it in the right way. And, you know, what I remind athletes of all the time on this topic is that, Health is the foundation of fitness, and, and fitness is the foundation of performance. Like you're not going to perform at a high level, especially not over an extended period of time, unless you have a solid foundation of health in place. And part of maintaining that foundation is nourishing your body. So it's fine to have a goal of getting leaner, but it matters tremendously how you go about it. And it's a mistake to think that getting leaner or lighter by any means necessary is good. 
or that some that like that's you know a lot of athletes will pick some arbitrary target. I need I need to get down to X pounds or Y body fat percentage. Like that's not the way to go about it. It's really you sh- you need to maintain a process focus. So you know do things by the book. You know train smart, eat a high quality diet. You know manage your appetite sensibly. Just build habits around those, you know, very sensible pieces that are totally relevant to weight management. And then wherever you get to through that process is where you should be. So, again, I'm not against the idea of putting energy into managing your weight, but it just matters so much how you do it. And a lot of, a lot of athletes, as you suggested, they botch it. Or also just like tying up their self-worth with what the number on the scale says. Yeah. Or even like, you know, how they look like, you know, like they need to look a certain way. No, no, you don't. You need to perform a certain way. And, you know, people are surprised all the time. I remember just as one example, the top American runner, Dathan Ritzenhine, a a 207 marathoner. I remember talking to him about this topic. And, you know, just like a lot of other athletes, he was uh, when he moved up to the marathon distance, he was trying to uh, you know, you need a lot of calories to be able to do the training for a marathon at the elite level, but you also need to be lean and light. And so he he was sort of searching for that balance. And he told me, you know, I did one marathon too heavy. I did another marathon too light. And it was only after, you know, my third or fourth marathon that I found a, a, a you know, a sweet spot in the middle. So, you know, it, it's not the case that lighter is always better. But you will, you know, the, the way to just minimize the risk and the, the likelihood that you'll, you know, go off the rails in one direction or another is, again, to maintain that process focus. Like, this is not rocket science. Like, we know a lot about, you know, <laughs> healthy eating and smart training, you know, the, the, the tools that will, will get you to the body composition that's right for you as an athlete. And if you focus on that, let the process play out, you will end up where you need to be. And, you know, the one thing I'll add is that the athletes who do a good job of this, they're not people who are thinking about food and their weight all the time. So if you're thinking about like if you are in the cycle of like stressing about food and your weight or like feeling a lot of guilt when you you know do something that's against your rules, no matter what you're actually eating, like if that's like the emotional component of your weight management efforts, that's not going to be sustainable and it's not going to get you to the performance you want to be. So it's as important to be happy with how you eat as it is to eat healthily. Yeah, I think that's awesome advice, being happy with what you eat and then just trying to be consistent with eating, quote, a healthy diet and trusting that your body will get to where it needs to be in order to perform optimally. Because like you said, you can look at one person and say, well, that person performs well at X pounds, but that doesn't mean that you're going to perform well at X pounds. And just because one person has a certain body type or looks a certain way, that doesn't mean that you need to look the way that way in order to perform in the same way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you just look at, you know, the elite level, you can find athletes who, you know, obviously you're seeing a lot of similar body types, but you can find athletes who kind of stand out a little bit with their physique you know, they're at the absolute highest level, but clearly like there's not only one body that can perform at that level. And, you know, those athletes who sort of break the mold a little bit, they wouldn't be where they are if they cared. And some of them actually went through a a phase where they did care. 
you know, and they, they thought, well, shoot, I don't look quite like everyone else. And they, they maybe, you know, went through a phase where they tried to and it ended in disaster. So actually, that's another example where, you know, they say comparison is the thief of joy. You know, it can put, you know, it can just take you off the course you need to be on if you're worried about, you know, over-focused on, on measuring yourself against other people. Yeah. Well, to close out the podcast, I'd love for you just to give a really brief overview of 8020, your coaching philosophy and where people can find you so that they can, because we just barely scratched the surface of all of the awesome information that you've put into the world. And I want people to be able to get more Matt Fitzgerald in their lives. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. Yeah. So, I mean, people in the business world are familiar with an 8020 principle, but there's also an 8020 endurance principle, which is kind of different. It grew out of the research of an exercise physiologist named Steven Seiler. I've written a couple books about it now, but it's just about the optimal balance of intensity for endurance athletes. So roughly 80% of your work should be done at a physiologically low intensity and the other 20% should be done at moderate to high intensity. Like that is what elite endurance athletes around the world do in all disciplines from cross-country skiing to mountain biking. And it also, there's been research done on recreational athletes like me to show that even if you don't have elite genes, and even if you don't have 30 hours a week to train, that that same intensity depth balance produces the best results in terms of fitness and performance gain for recreational athletes as well. So, I mean, there's no magic in round numbers. It's not like you're going to like go off the rails if you're at 79, 21 or what have you. But it's just nice to put a number on the principle because it, it's the single most common mistake that endurance athletes make at the, <laughs> at the recreational level is uh, doing too much, sort of getting stuck in the moderate intensity rut, not spending enough of their training time at low intensity. So yeah, I've written two books about that, 80-20 running, 80-20 triathlon. I think I'm due for an 80-20 cycling. Yeah, I think, I think you are. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of uh, endurance athletes also, especially new ones, they'll just go out and they'll ride as hard as they can every single ride. Like I've seen that with um, friends that are kind of new athletes and they want to go ride. And I'm like, why are you going so hard? Let's go easier today. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that athletes get that pulled into that that rut. But it's really good news, right? Because if you actually slow down 80% of the time, you don't even you can you don't even have to train more. If you take whatever a time you're currently committing to training and just make sure that your easy training is truly easy, you'll start to feel awesome. Believe me, I like to hammer. I like to go hard. And if you do too, actually making your easy training easy will allow you to totally crush the workouts that are supposed to be hard. And then you can go from there. I love it. Where's the best place for people to get in touch with you? Yeah. The, so the hub for all things Matt Fitzgerald online is uh, mattfitzgerald.org. Don't go to dot com. That's some other joker. Um, <laughs> yes. So <laughs> awesome. That's your starting point. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was super fun to get to chat with you about lots of things that I love. And I know that the audience is going to get a lot out of this as well. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks. Hope you guys love that episode. Make sure that you go to Matt Fitzgerald's website, 8020endurance.com. As I mentioned, he's written well over 25 books. So if you're looking for something for training, for nutrition, for the mental side of sport, if you're a triathlete, a runner, there's all kinds of stuff out there on his website. 
Thanks so much for listening to the show, you guys. Really, really appreciate you. Appreciate you being part of my community and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. We'll see you right back here next week.